I'm Jeff Ebert, and welcome to my podcast, Gospel Wabi Sabi, God's good news for imperfect people like you and me. This is season five, episode 23. Today we're in chapter 15, verses 1 through 11 of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, and the topic is the power of the resurrection. We've got about about four more episodes to go on 1 Corinthians 4 or 5, and then we'll start a new season, season 6, and that's going to be on the Gospel of Luke, and I'm really looking forward to getting back to a gospel because that's how this podcast originated with the Gospel of John. An entire year, we spent, I think, 55 weeks going through the Gospel of John. Luke is quite different from John, and there's very little overlap between the two. So we're going to be going into things like the Sermon on the Mount and the parables of Jesus, some of his miracles, but mostly Luke is about the teaching ministry of Jesus. You know, a lot of non-Christians will say that they like the things Jesus taught, even though they don't put their faith in him as their Savior. And I wonder if they've actually read the things that Jesus actually taught. And that's what we're going to do. Because usually all that people know is, you know, love your neighbor as yourself or judge not lest you be judged. So I hope that the podcast will be attractive to people who maybe want to study the teachings of Jesus for the first time. My goal will be to make the teachings of Jesus accessible and relevant to our modern ears. And I would encourage you to gather some folks into a group, use the podcast to stimulate, you know, a study of Luke's gospel. It could be life changing. So let's begin today. We're going to read the scripture passage as we near the end of our series on the Apostle Paul's first letter to the Christians in the ancient Greek city of Corinth. This is 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 11. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom who are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was working with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. Here's a question that I've struggled with, and you've heard me say this before, and that is, can people really change? Can people really change, and I mean deeply change, or are we stuck pre-programmed by our DNA and our family of origin are we stuck in a cage of our own making, our own sin, our lack of discipline or will or will or the abundance of just laziness? You know these expressions, a leopard can't change its spots, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Those are expressions of hopelessness. If those adages are true, then that means we are all trapped, locked in, shackled to the past, and we are fools if we think otherwise. 
But we all know it is possible for people to change, at least at, at some level. An alcoholic who was 20 years sober, a person once addicted to drugs now leading a happy, productive life, a couch potato who could barely walk around the block without getting winded, now running a 10K race. Bringing change to people's lives is actually a billion-dollar business. The promise to lose weight, get in shape, raise your SAT scores, improve your relationships or whatever, that's big business. And the self-help industry churns out new websites, apps, books, podcasts on a daily basis, all dedicated to helping people change. The vast majority of these changes have to do with changing habits, changing habits because behavior is basically a collection of our habits. Habits are the patterns we've established for how we currently live and what we currently do. So changing habits becomes the key to making changes to one's life. Eating better food, getting more exercise, filling your mind with positive power thoughts instead of negative ones, changing your mindset. Most experts that I've read said it takes between 21 and 30 days to make or break a habit, basically a month of concentrated effort. Researchers have even pinpointed the region of the brain as the place that controls habitual behavior. Tests have shown that when a new habit is learned, the neurons in the basal ganglia actually fire differently. Researchers can see the change taking place in the person's brain. That's amazing to me. But the brain can just as easily go back to the old pattern if the new habit isn't sustained. That's why it's so hard to change an old habit. You may reverse the way your neurons fire, when you stop smoking, but they'll change right back immediately once you take that first puff. That's how powerful our habits really are. And what the Apostle Paul is telling us today is that apart from the physical bodily resurrection of Christ, the Christian faith would just be another self-help program with a religious flair. Without the resurrection power of Jesus, the Christian faith would just be another program telling you that you need more self-discipline or more perseverance or more hard work. Sunday sermons should just be a weekly pep talk to get you fired up and motivated to try, try, try again, to get you going, to get you off your butt, and to stop making excuses. And there is a bit of truth in that. We all do need motivation. We do need community to support our best efforts in life and in our spiritual disciplines, you know, like prayer and Bible study. We do all need a kick in the pants every once in a while. But if that's all we think of our faith, if that's our total approach or understanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, Paul says, you've totally missed the boat. And he uses himself as an example for what he's talking about. The key verse you should have underlined in your Bible or highlighted in your Bible app here are verses 9 and 10. Let me just read them again. Paul writes, For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was working with me. Paul gives a mini testimony here about his life change, a mini story about his life transformation because of Jesus Christ. If you go back and do a short review of his spiritual biography, we can get kind of why his personal story is so important to our story today. We first encounter Paul in the Bible in the book of Acts of the Apostles. And during the time immediately after Christ's resurrection, as the apostles started going through Jerusalem and the surrounding area, sharing the good news about Jesus. A man named Stephen 
was preaching publicly about Jesus that that got him arrested and dragged before a local court called the Sanhedrin. It was made up of 23 rabbis who basically called the shots, the same group of people who passed judgment on Jesus in Matthew 26, same group that had Peter flogged in Acts chapter 5 for preaching about Christ and who issued a gag order that people should just not mention the name of Jesus. So they weren't happy with what Stephen was doing. In fact, it says in Acts 7.54, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw God's glory and Jesus standing at the right side of God. Look, he said, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right side, right side of God. And with a loud cry, the council members covered their ears with their hands. And then they all rushed at him at once, threw him out of the city and stoned him. And here's the key part. The witnesses left their cloaks in the care of a young man named Saul. See, Saul, that was the Apostle Paul's name before his life was changed to Christ, by Christ. He held the coats as the others stoned Stephen to death with baseball-sized rocks. Saul, a young man, a Pharisee, which meant he was highly educated, totally committed to the cause of eradicating the message of Christ and stomping out any resistance. The next time we see Saul is in chapter 9 of Acts, where he initiates and organizes a roundup of Christians to be beaten and, if necessary, executed. He did it systematically, methodically, effectively. He was a terror to the early Christians. He instigated and led a religious genocide. Now think about that. He instigated and led a religious genocide. He was the hunter. They were the prey. He had Christian blood on his hands. How filled with hate was his heart for all the things Christian. And he expanded the radius of his purge to the surrounding countries. He was on his way from Jerusalem to Damascus and Syria with his good squad to his goon squad to ferret out any Christians there. And that's when Jesus himself intervened. And Acts 9 tells us, as Saul was coming near the city of Damascus, suddenly a light from the sky surrounded, flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? He asked. I am Jesus, whom you persecute, the voice said. But get up and go into the city where you will be told what you must do. And the men who were traveling with Saul had stopped, not saying a word. They heard the voice, but could not see anyone. Paul got up from the ground and opened his eyes, but could not see a thing. And so they took him by the hand and led him into Damascus. Then God tells one of the leaders of the church in Damascus, a guy named Ananias, to go see the blinded Paul and tell him the gospel. And you can imagine Ananias saying, who, me? Are you nuts, Lord? Do you know who that guy is? You see, everybody knew who Saul was. His reputation preceded him. And they were sure this was some kind of a trap to get the Christians to reveal themselves. And then Paul would spring a trap. But God says, nope, I'm in this. Go see him. And bravely Ananias does, and as he shares the faith with Saul, scales literally fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see both literally and spiritually. Saul's eyes were open to the truth of Jesus, and he received the Holy Spirit, was baptized right there in the house, and his life completely changed. The name change from Saul to Paul was to illustrate how great a change this was. Saul was a Jewish name that reflected his upbringing. He describes this heritage in Philippians 3.5. He says, I was circumcised when I was a week old. I'm an Israelite by birth. 
of the tribe of Benjamin, a pure-blooded Hebrew. As far as keeping the Jewish law is concerned, I was a Pharisee, and I was so zealous that I persecuted the church. That's who he was, Saul. But Paul is a Roman name. It described his new calling from God to be an apostle to the Gentiles, to all the non-Jewish peoples of the ancient world. The total opposite of his upbringing and experience. A pious Pharisee wouldn't cross, I mean, would cross the street to avoid even walking past a Gentile. But now Paul would have to move beyond his racial and religious bias. He would have to love those whom he once hated. He would give his life for that which he once sought to destroy. That's more, so much more than changing a few habits or rerouting a few neurons in the basal ganglia. Saul, the persecutor, needed deep, deep fundamental change to become Paul the Apostle. And how does that kind of deep change actually happen? You know, most of the time when people talk about wanting to see change in their lives, it tends to be about superficial things, things easily seen and concretely addressed. I want to lose belly fat. I want to learn how to play the guitar or play golf. I want to manage my time more effectively. I need to learn that new computer program. Those are all things on the surface of life. Or you can go another step deeper. I want to learn how to handle my anger. I need to be able to forgive those who have wounded me. I need more effective ways to deal with conflict. I have to find better ways to cope with stress. Those are also common areas where people seek change. But even those things are often just dealing with the symptoms and not the deeper disease. It's sort of like an iceberg. Only about one-eighth of an iceberg's total mass is visible above the waterline. The rest of it is hidden below the surface. The issues that most of us want to deal with are those issues that are already visible above the waterline. But often, it's what is hidden below the surface that tells us who we really are. And that place is much harder to access. Often, we're not even aware of it for ourselves. We're blind to what's really going on. Others may see it and try to point it out to us, but usually that doesn't work. Unless we see it for ourselves, we can't accept that there's anything going on, nothing that's a problem. The hidden stuff we even hide from ourselves. And mostly it takes a lightning bolt, a crisis, a two-by-four to the forehead to give us a wake-up call that something is out of whack. And Saul got his when Jesus, Jesus literally knocked him off his high horse and blinded him. That's just what Paul needed. He needed to be humbled in that way. He needed his face in the dust and to be shown how blind he was to the truth of the horror of what he was doing, rounding up Christians to have them killed. Until his face hit the dirt, he believed he was doing not just the right thing, he actually believed he was doing God's will. So total was his own self-deceit. And isn't that so true of people who commit terrible horrors? They somehow think that they're doing God's will, but they're so completely self-deceived. But what Paul wanted the Corinthians to know, what Paul wants us to know, is that this change that took place in him was not because of Jesus the religious teacher and all the fine things Jesus said. The change that took place in him was not because of Jesus the philosopher whose wisdom surpassed the wisdom of the Pharisees. The change that took place in him was not because of Jesus the martyr who died on a Roman cross, misunderstood and mistreated. If that is all there is to the Christian message, then Paul would still be Saul, and we'd be one big self-help group. No, Paul says the most important thing, the thing that alters reality, the thing that makes deep fundamental change and actual, 
actually possible is the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. Verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise you have believed in vain, for what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. You see, it's the resurrection of Jesus that is of first importance. I love that phrase. That is the gospel that saves. That is the good news of forgiveness that goes far beyond the surface issues of life and into the very core of sin that resides in the deepest recesses of the human heart. That's God's grace, God's unmerited love released into the human heart through faith in the resurrection of Jesus. Without the resurrection of Jesus, we would still all be lost in our sin. but We would also be hopelessly locked into the patterns and habits of our broken selves. But it is because of that resurrection that Paul can say, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. I mean, what else can change the heart of a murderer, the heart of someone who willingly commits genocide? What else can change a heart full of, uh, so, uh, so damaged by hatred to a heart full of love? Only the grace of God. Can you imagine the sparking that went on in Paul's basal ganglia when he encountered the risen Christ? His circuits went into overload. And that's what changed him. And that's what started the changes in his life. You see, the resurrection doesn't just bring a pardon to your past. It also brings power for your present. Let me say that again. The resurrection doesn't just bring pardon to your past. It brings power for your present. The change that Jesus brings in a moment of salvation, but that change is also ongoing throughout life as we take the next step and the next step closer to him. Paul uses two very similar expressions to illustrate the salvation process in his letter to the Corinthians. Here in verse 2, he says, By this gospel you are saved. The tense of that phrase means something has happened and that action is complete. You are saved. The action of being saved is a completed action. And that has to do with the forgiveness of your sins. That's a once and done thing. You don't have to repeat it again. You are saved forever when you put your faith in Christ. All of our sins, past, present, and future, wiped away. All paid for by the cross and the empty tomb. You are saved, and Christ accomplished that for you. But in other passages, he uses a different phrase. Back in chapter 1, verse 18, he says, The gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, did you hear the difference? Those of us who are being saved, that's a continuing action. That's something that started in the past, but is still going on. And what that means is that our salvation is both a single event and an ongoing process. We are saved, and we are being saved, both at the same time. The change that Christ brings is both instantaneous and a process. Immediately when we first put our faith in Christ, our sins are forgiven, our hearts are clean before God, our eternity is secure, not because we're so good, but because God is so gracious. It's all about what Jesus did, not what we do. We just receive the gift of eternal life in his name. And then God says, now that you belong to me, Let's get to work on the inside. I want you to become more and more like my son. I want you to take on his character, his conduct, his compassion. In every situation of life, I want you to instinctively think, what would Jesus do? 
and then do it. The changes in Paul's life were both instantaneous and a process. We're told in other parts of the New Testament that Paul immediately started to preach about his new faith, and the backlash was swift and brutal. He was seen as the ultimate traitor and turncoat, a deserter. And so his former colleagues at the Sanhedrin wanted his head on a spike, literally. The church hustled him out of town incognito. He spent three years in Arabia, slowly nurturing his faith and learning about his new relationship with Christ. He did have a lot of bad habits to break and new habits to learn. And then when he came back, he wasn't immediately given a place of leadership. He needed a few years to put down roots into Christ. He needed time to be apprenticed by older, wiser believers. He needed time to be disciplined and trained and molded into the man God needed him to be. He had rough edges that needed to be smoothed. I'm sure the graphic on his favorite t-shirt would be, Be patient, God isn't finished with me yet. He needed time for transition, to move from being a persecutor of the, of the gospel to being a proclaimer of the gospel. He was saved and he was being saved. Here's how Paul describes the change the resurrected Christ brought to his life in 1 Timothy 1.13. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Bottom line, what Paul was saying, he was saying, I was the worst. I persecuted the church. If God can change me, he can change anybody. Nobody is too far from God's grip, too far gone from God's grace. God saw in me a me that I did not see. The living Christ is able to enter your heart, your personality, and change it. And it is by grace of God that I am what I am. The death and resurrection of Christ brings pardon and power. Pardon for the past, but power for the present. You are saved and you are being saved if you've opened your heart to Christ. And that's the good news of the gospel preached to you. Have a great week.